0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social
1: world. Michelle Alexander made a shocking claim in her 2010 book, The New Jim Crow. In the wake of the civil rights era, she argues, criminal punishment has come to succeed slavery and legal discrimination as a powerful and comprehensive system of racial control in the United States. As a civil rights lawyer and law professor, Dr. Alexander assembled decades of social science evidence in building a strong and convincing case for her provocative claim. The book quickly became a bestseller, inspiring students, prisoners, policymakers, and readers from all walks of life. We spoke with Alexander about exposing and pushing back against carceral control, as well as spreading social science beyond academia.
0: race relations class this semester and my students just loved it Um, they were really challenged challenged by it but it was a really Mm -hmm. really fruitful discussions and so in any Mm -hmm. case that really motivated me to want to talk to you about the book so first in thinking about teaching race relations and just conversations about race relations in the academy and in the general public it seems like the criminal justice system is often left out of those conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, But your book argues that these are really fundamentally interconnected issues. So first, why do you think mass incarceration and the criminal justice system should be such central topics in any discussion of race?
1: Well, in my view, the mass incarceration of poor people of color is the most pressing racial justice issue of our time. I think there is a tremendous amount of mythology regarding an explosion in our criminal justice system and, in my experience, most people imagine that our prison population quintupled the United States and uh, millions of black and brown people began cycling in and out of prison due largely to bad schools, broken homes, and poverty. But what I came to learn in my years of work and research on these issues is that the conventional explanations and justifications for our prison explosion are simply wrong, that our prison population did not explode simply because of crime or crime rates, nor can it be explained simply by failing schools or poverty. You know, crime rates over the last few decades have Fluctuated and then fallen. And we've had bad schools and high levels of poverty in poor communities of color forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we've never had a system of mass incarceration like this one. And this system of mass incarceration has fundamentally altered the life course for millions of people in the United States and it's produced a caste-like system in many communities where people are trapped, uh, literally from cradle to grave, uh, born into a system in which they are targeted by the police at young ages, swept in to the criminal justice system, primarily for nonviolent and drug-related crimes, the very sorts of crimes that occur with roughly equal frequency in middle-class white communities on college campuses, but so largely ignored swept in branded criminals and felons and then are strict of the very rights supposedly won in the civil rights movement, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries and the right to be free of legal discrimination and employment, housing, access to education and public benefits. So many of the old forms of discrimination that we supposedly (laughs) left behind during the old Jim Crow era are suddenly legal again once you've been branded a criminal or a felon. And the scale of mass incarceration I think goes beyond what most people even realize today because prisons are out of sight and out of mind for those who are not directly impacted. Most people have no idea of the millions who are now trapped in a permanent second-class status, many of whom are cycling in and out of prisons and jails, unable to find work or housing because of the legal discrimination they face, and trapped in a cycle of perpetual marginality. A system of racial and social control that is eerily reminiscent of an era that we supposedly left behind.
0: I think the, the key part in there that really sticks with students especially, and probably everyone reading this book, is how we can see something like discrimination in hiring and say, well, that makes sense, people don't want felons mm-hmm. working at their jobs, but then you see all of the compounding factors, and it really is a clear argument that this is, a, you know, a second-class citizenship uh, for so many people today. So Yeah, it's
1: easy to justify each form of discrimination, you know, one by one. Right. Um, it's easy to kind of make rational arguments about why one form of discrimination might make sense. But then when you put them all together, (laughs) you see that there's, you know, a web that does operate to trap people, often for relatively minor offenses, and, you know, they're forced to pay for their mistakes for the rest of their lives. Right.
0: Your book has been so successful outside of academia, and this is something that many scholars try for and uh, are not successful. Uh, So I'm wondering why you think that it's been so successful and so well-received by a general public uh, and why you've had such a uh, interest in the book, despite being quite uh, controversial, maybe?
1: I have to say that when I first decided to write the book, I was discouraged from doing so. I was told by many of my mentors and advisors within academia that... I shouldn't write a book arguing that our criminal justice system functions much like a caste system. I shouldn't write such a book if I cared at all about my career. I was told, you know, look, you're on tenure track. (laughs) You can say any kind of crazy thing you want to later on, later in your career. (laughs) But for now, why not just, you know, write some academic articles that, you know, are case studies or reflect upon some aspect of the system that you find discriminatory and present the evidence. But if you make a sweeping claim like the one I was planning to make in the book, and if I write it for a general audience rather than an academic one, that I would be doing myself a disservice as an academic. So my sense is that there are many academics who probably have great books in them that would help to shift public consciousness and inspire precisely the kinds of debates and conversations we ought to be having, but find themselves discouraged by their colleagues and people in their circles from framing issues in a way that are challenging to kind of conventional understandings about race and our social order. Now, I was in the law school, and so I can't speak for, you know, what attitudes and climates are like in humanities departments and others, which I know are often much more (laughs) open-minded, shall we say, than some (laughs) law school environments. But I think that there is a that academics often feel between kind of speaking in a language that, you know, in a language and in a tone that is viewed as acceptable to their colleagues and, you know, the desire to communicate in a direct, bold, provocative fashion with a general audience in order to spark a lot of conversation or debate. And I think that, the decision for me to go ahead and write the book was a relatively easy one, in part because I viewed myself as an advocate first and an academic second. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that I value mm-hmm. academic scholarship. To the contrary, there's no way that I could have written my book without the voluminous research, studies, you know, data that had been, you know, produced, compiled, reported on by other academics. But I felt that kind of at my core, it was more in- important to me to ensure that an important message was heard than to be an academic. You know, I think I think that much more non-traditional, I <laughs> shall you say non-traditional scholarship, Could be produced if we helped to foster environments within academia that valued people serving as a bridge to um, the broader public and if the kind of culture and environment in academia was much more supportive of that kind of work. Now, I want to underscore that, you know, Ohio State University, I'm at the law school at Ohio State University, has been nothing but supportive of me (laughs) since I came. And I think the fact that the book has done well and it's been well received has helped to um, encourage others to imagine that, you know, that kind of work can be valued and can, can do well. But I'm also very grateful that my publisher, The New Press, which is, you know, a nonprofit, non-academic publisher, <laughs> mm-hmm. stresses To me over and over again, the importance of speaking in language that ordinary people will understand, to strip away everything that was legalese, everything that, you know, only other academics would understand, to eliminate all the jargon, and to be as direct and kind of pointed as I possibly could, uh, without sacrificing in any way you know, the integrity of the material that I was trying to share. So I think having a really good publisher that's in the business of trying to, sh- you know, shape and influence public opinion and is committed to, you know, achieving precisely this kind of impact is hugely important and being part of a community I joined the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State and it was helpful to be part of a you know, supportive community of academics, of scholars who saw the value and importance of reaching a larger audience and saying inconvenience in unpopular popular truths.
0: I couldn't agree more with uh, the goal of bridging the gap between advocates and academics and I think that's something that We talk a great deal about, but when it actually gets down to the real nuts and bolts of publishing, it doesn't happen often. Yeah. Um, But so on the flip side, I'm wondering why uh, you think that the book sparked such an interest in the general public Then, I mean, what was it about the book that maybe, you know, so many people were really moved by or really yearning to
1: hear? Well, first I should point out that it didn't strike much interest in the beginning. Oh, okay. That during the first year after the book was published, I couldn't get anybody to review the book. I was okay. having trouble finding anyone who would want me to come speak <laughs> about the book. Um, the book was released literally the same month that Obama was inaugurated for the first time. And I remember when I was finishing the book, you know, and doing my final revisions <laughs> of the manuscript... <laughs> Obama was on the campaign trail, you know, in the primaries running against Hillary and and won the primaries. I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, if Obama wins the presidency, no one is going to buy the idea that we have something like a caste system existing in the United States <laughs> today.
0: Right. You know,
1: right. and I thought, you know, it's going to make it impossible for this message to be heard and is true for the first year. I mean, the media was awash in kind of post-racial sentiment, and it was very difficult to have this conversation about something like a racial caste system still existing in the United States. But after the kind of initial Obama euphoria, (laughs) euphoria began to wear off, there was an opening where people were starting to, I think, reflect a little more carefully on what is You know, what does the Obama presidency really mean? Um, How far have we really come? And that created an opening, I think, for deeper reflection. And I should also say that I don't think the book would have really launched if it hadn't been for a very small nonprofit grassroots organization based in Chicago called the Black Star Project which is a grassroots organization dedicated to closing the achievement gap between, you know, kids of color and white kids and, you know, achieving educational equity in inner-city schools. And they don't even do any work around criminal justice reform. But the executive director of that organization, Philip Jackson, read the book and called me up and basically said, we need... the." You know, people need to hear this in Chicago. He's like, you know, my, all of the students, all of the parents that I work with, we're living this reality. You know, we have these entire communities that are under correctional control. The parents of these kids are cycling in and out of prisons and jails, and no one understands what's really going on. Everyone suspects (laughs) that something is horribly awry, but there's just a lot of shaming and blaming that occurs within our own communities, and people need to understand what is really happening. And so come and speak. And so he invited me to speak at a church in Chicago, and he packed that church with hundreds of people, videotaped my speech, which was very well received, and then sent out <laughs> probably 20 different emails to tens of thousands of people on his listservs with clips of my speeches and just telling people, you have to read this book, you have to read this book, you have to invite her to speak. And he has an enormous email network, and it's one of these stories of the miracles of social networking. Right.
0: um,
1: Where all of a sudden I started receiving requests to come speak from all over the country. And it started off with churches and community groups, and then I started getting more requests from schools and kind of momentum began to build and I finally got asked to do some mainstream media interviews and the ball began to roll but I really trace it to you know one small organization <laughs> taking it upon themselves to really kind of launch a crusade to kind of raise consciousness around these issues and to kind of connect the dots between what people who were working on education reform and education equity were doing to the work of, you know, people who are fighting to end mass incarceration.
0: It it really shows how connected, you know, how someone working with education, this would be such an important issue for them in that this is connected to every facet of, of, of these social problems, mass incarceration. Yes. Yes. Great. Uh, well, now that you have been going around the country um, having all these conversations and um, doing all these appearances, what have, what have you been talking about with people afterwards or what has the, the reaction been, um, positive or, or resistance?
1: Overwhelmingly, people are positive and you know, want very much to take action. And, you know, as I travel around the country, the question that comes up over and over again is, what now? What do we do? What does it really mean to build a movement to end mass incarceration? And what can I, as an ordinary person or as a student or as an academic or as a person, what can I do to help build this movement and contribute to this work and You know, I think one of my frustrations has been that there is no national kind of grassroots organization dedicated to ending mass incarceration. You know, during the Jim Crow era, there was an organization, the NAACP, a grassroots organization with chapters, you know, around the country dedicated to ending Jim Crow. And, you know, during slavery, there were abolitionist organizations that... Were grassroots in nature, dedicated to ending slavery, etc. You, you know, the list can go on of examples of where there, you know, where it's necessary to make a major shift—not just in policy, but in a cultural shift—that um, requires a shift in public consciousness at a grassroots level. Which any effort to end mass incarceration requires so that there's some kind of national organization rooted in communities that it's helping to move the work and the agenda forward and to force a dialogue in communities around the country. And that doesn't exist yet. With respect to the issue of mass incarceration, so it's a very difficult one. You know, let's say I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I you know, talk, to people say, I want to join this movement. I want to be part of it, to be able to tell them what exactly to do. There is no one organization just focused on this like a laser. There's organizations like the NAACP and the ACLU and others that are working on these issues. But, you know, as of today, (laughs) that national kind of organization that's just focused like a laser on ending mass incarceration and that someone who wants to be part of this movement can simply join doesn't yet exist. Mm -hmm. I am really encouraged by the fact that around the country, Students Against Mass Incarceration chapters are beginning to form on college campuses and universities. The first one was born um, at Howard University, but now I think that there's a dozen or more different chapters of Students Against Mass Incarceration, and I think this year they're having their first national conference of students around the country who are committed to ending mass incarceration and, you know, students coming together to try to figure out, you know, what is our role? How can we contribute? You know, kind of struggling to find their voice in this time and to think about what strategies and tactics and all of that are necessary to raise awareness and, you know, engage in a movement for real change. So um, and the faith community for the first time yeah. is beginning to really organize against mass incarceration, which is encouraging. And so there's lots of hopeful signs, but I think that we still have a ways to go before we kind of reach a point where it'll be easy or much easier to tell people in any given community what they can do to connect to the movement.
0: So you you mentioned uh, Obama earlier and, and this idea of colorblindness. Uh, for many Americans, we and we experience this a great deal with undergraduates, uh, it often takes quite the, a psychological jump to, to move from, well, this is especially for white Americans, but for many others as well, to abandon everything they've been taught or that they want to believe about this promise of colorblindness. Mm -hmm. Um, So how does this ideal of colorblindness or of not seeing race stand in opposition to what you're trying to advocate in this book?
1: Well, I think, you know, what I've tried to argue in the book and elsewhere is that Blindness is really just the wrong metaphor for what ought to be our goal in working towards a more just and inclusive society that what we've seen over the last few decades is that our nation has not so much become blind to race, of course we still see (laughs) our racial differences, and the colors of each other's skin, and we still notice race, what we've become blind to is racial suffering. We've become blind to the experiences and the basic humanity of people of different racial and ethnic groups. And, you know, I really believe that our goal isn't to work towards blindness and indifference, to one another, to not see race, but to be, to work instead towards seeing race and still caring about the person you see. We don't want to be blind to racial differences or racial discrimination or racial disparities. We want to be able to see those differences. We want to be able to see discrimination and racial disparities and see racial injustice when it occurs and respond to it with care, compassion, and concern. But this mentality of colorblindness has encouraged us instead to adopt an attitude of, I don't care if he's black. I don't care what race he or she is. And to rationalize this mentality of colorblindness allows us to rationalize our indifference to racial inequity, racial discrimination, racial disparities, the experiences of groups of people defined by race. So what I'm arguing for is a shift away from blindness and indifference and towards greater care, compassion, and concern. We don't need to be blind to one another in order to care about one another. In fact, the more we insist upon being blind and not seeing each other fully as we are, (laughs) I think the more likely it is um, that we will be able to rationalize our indifference and close our eyes to the... Um, you know, actual lived experiences of groups of people
0: defined by race. Absolutely. So what is seen as this positive ideal of not seeing race actually turns into this negative, I don't care. Uh, I don't care about a different group. Absolutely. Lastly, I was curious, um, I assigned this book at the University of Minnesota, uh, where I have um, it's a relatively diverse school, but I have a lot of white students, and I was really curious um, how they would respond to these types of arguments, um, and if they would recognize mass incarceration as a problem that they should be concerned about. Um, mm-hmm. And it makes me think about you know, zooming out to um, white American society in general, and wonder how this problem of mass incarceration and this racialized mass incarceration uh, can really be addressed within a white-dominated society that maybe doesn't think this is A problem that affects them.
1: Well, I think that's an excellent question. I think it. I I think it really goes to the core challenge of, of building a movement and mass incarceration. How do we inspire people to care about not only those who seem different on the surface? They look different. They're the other. How do we inspire people to care about the other? Especially when the other has been labeled as a criminal, (laughs) if there is no clear self-interest, you know, at at stake. And that dilemma has led, you know, many civil rights advocates and policy reformers to believe that we really have to talk to white audiences about the cost of mass incarceration and make it clear that You know, they do have a stake in this because they're paying for it. It's hitting their pocketbook in ways that they may not realize. And if they want to save money, if they want a less expensive way of managing crime and punishment in the United States, they need to think about doing things differently. I can see why people are tempted by that strategy of simply appealing or trying to appeal to white self-interest, but my own view is that that strategy will fail in the long run, and that there really is no getting around the need to begin to define and adopt strategies and language that will really challenge, you know, more privileged communities, you know, along lines of race and class and ethnicity, more privileged communities, To care about the others simply because they share a common humanity. And I think that is, that was the genius of the civil rights movement that the tactics of creative nonviolence and the message of the movement really challenged people to imagine that they had a shared humanity with those. They viewed as different or other or inferior. And that the tactics themselves forced a public conversation, helped to make visible what was hidden or denied. And just as prisons today are out of sight, out of mind, during the old Jim Crow era, um, the caste system wasn't out of sight, but it was out of mind. It was easy for people to rationalize the so-called separate but equal way of being. And the tactics that were employed there, You know, with the Montgomery Bus boycotts and the Freedom Rides, etc., the packets that were employed, especially because they invited so much hostility and resistance, helped to dramatize the injustice of the system itself and force a public conversation. There's a wonderful article that I highly recommend. You might consider using it in your classes called Bleeding Heart by Thomas Stoddard and Tom Starter was the former director of Lambda in New York City. He was the director in the 1990s, um, Lambda's big gay lesbian rights organization. Mm -hmm. And I won't tell you the whole article. You can take a look at it yourself. It's a pretty short piece, an easy read. Um, But the thesis of the article is that advocates, people who are working for social change, have to determine at the outset whether they are seeking simply rule shifting, like a change in a law here or there, or cultural transformation. And if the goal is cultural transformation, in other words, the ultimate goal is shifting the way people think and how they relate to one another (laughs) and society as a whole, then nothing short of a major movement that involves a major conflict over values, basically a big public fight. <laughs> Nothing short of a major movement that forces a major confrontation over values has any hope of success. And I I share his view, um, which is why, you know, I think that the piecemeal policy reform efforts are important. But ultimately, we're going to have to figure out how to force a public conversation about what we as a nation have done again by creating this massive system of incarceration, a penal system unprecedented in world history. We're going to have to force a public conversation about that and kind of smoke out the opposition and ensure that, you know, our strategies and tactics you know, are ones that are conducive to inspiring people to imagine a shared humanity, a common humanity. So it's no easy task, but it's been done before, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I believe with some courage and we can do it again, and I'm inspired by work that I see going on in communities all over the country right now that we'll find our way sooner or later.
0: Well, I can speak for my students and I, at least. We're also very inspired by you. So thank you, Professor Alexander. Thank
1: you. Well, best of luck to you, and thank you for your work and for uh, provoking these kinds of conversations in your classroom.